This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome Will Lee to the show. That's what I'm looking for. Every time I do this, I want an applause. I need an applause button, but thank you for adding that, dude. How are you? Uh, good. Doing good. Just finished a, a wonderful meal of some potatoes au gratin here in France. Oh, I bet that was yeah. beautiful. It was lovely. Well, it's good. I feel better. Good. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to have you on uh, Bass Freaks. We really appreciate you being here. So first question I have for you is uh, I had a chance to do uh, The Late Show, David Letterman, one time. I was very fortunate to get on there. And it was always one of my childhood dreams. But how in the heck did you manage the freezing icebox that is that studio? Every How long were you doing that show? 33 and a third years. <laughs> but that time, I, are you, you're referring to the Ed Sullivan version of it at, back at CBS, right? So if it was between 1991 and, and 2015, it was the late show over there at the frozen tundra known as the Ed Sullivan yes. Theater. I was so cold. Man, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, okay, so so we for six years in, in the in the house band, we actually and it, it's easier for me to say this than one of the horn players that has to pick up an instrument and just start blowing into a cold thing, right? <laughs> But um, even further back where the bands were, and especially that's, especially like where the source of the cold air was, that's where they used to put all the string players and they used to go nuts. Whenever somebody had like a small orchestra or whatever with them, like a small section or something, those four people would have to be playing their instrument in tune, you know, in this cold draft. And, and it was so cold that our, our, our techie, Mike Ferrante was the music tech, once had pics printed up with the with the late show logo on one side and the other side said 47 degrees <laughs> i mean it was on i know what you mean it was unbelievable six for six years we lobbied until we finally got these overhead heaters put that they supplied us you know after years of bitching about it I, I, so we kind of had it made but everybody else that came in was just like i mean aretha had like you know, where people would like if, if it was Julio Iglesias, he would have a semicircle of monitors of vocal of, you know, sound yeah. monitors for for himself to hear himself. Right. Aretha had like that many. I'd, I'm going to say 10 heaters. <laughs> in a semicircle in See, you smart because I was I don't know how I mean, your hands worked every day well you know you got vocal cords you got fingers that need to to, to manipulate to, to make music happen right. right so you gotta i mean you can't do it if you're like the tin man and the wizard of oz you know 
you got to have some fluidity going on. So you need some warmth. Absolutely. The blood's got to flow. What was the, I'm, this is just a personal question I have within my, swimming around my mind. What is the purpose of having it that cold? Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's uh, just the answer. I have a joke that I always say, but I don't know if I'm going to say it in this book. Yeah, I will say okay. it. Um, and this is just a joke because I love the hell out of Dave Letterman as a person and as, and as an everything. Okay. You know, and That's the disclaimer. All right. We got that. Joke was always because we like to keep our comedy fresh. That was his joke. <laughs> okay. My joke was, I think that's Dave's whole social life there. And I think that's the one place where he gets to see some nipple. <laughs> okay. Next question. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So, you, can I ask you please. a question? Who are you playing with when you were uh, on the show? Daughtry, Chris Daughtry. Excellent. Wow, yeah. man. Didn't speak out on it. What's that? You and I did no, not. No, we didn't. Out of it. I wanted to, but uh, I think I waved to you, but you were probably frozen. You probably had to get through my people to get to me. You know, <laughs> one of those guys with entourage, yeah. bodyguards. Entourage. Everywhere. Oh yeah, man. So why the base? Why the base? Talk to me. Why the base? Okay. Well, actually, that's that's a that's a good question. It was a kind of a it was kind of a uh, you know just a default thing that I fell into because you know uh, you're you're 11 years old and you're you're the drummer in the band. That was me. And you're also the lead singer and and you're looking around and there's you and two guitar players and a saxophone player. And, you know, it was all fun games, but we were starting to get gigs a little bit, you know, or at least we wanted to get some gigs. And um, besides just the six dollar a man Catholic youth youth organization picnic. <laughs> um, so I said, man, you know, I'd love to get us. I'd love for us to have a more professional sound. Let's get a bass player. And everybody was all for it, you know, but looking around, we're, we're all like 11 years old, you know, and kids that age at that time didn't know what the, what the bass was about. It was kind of a new instrument. And, you know, at that was around the Beatles time when, when sales of uh, drums and guitars and drums and guitars and drums and guitars were just going out the window and everybody loved Paul McCartney, but they would have been just as happy doing this with a racket, with a tennis racket. <laughs> Was pretending, you know what I mean? Because it, it's like, well, I, I hear this music and it all sounds like one big, beautiful sound, but I don't think kids our age were ready to to discern what the function of the bass was, was really doing inside of all that excitement, you know? Okay. Anyway, I I was hip to what was going on and I was, and I was fascinated by that. And of course I would have been, you know, we didn't want to just get a bass player, we, we probably would have wanted to have found a good one if we could have, you know, because otherwise it would have just been a drag. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get off the drums. I'll do the bass thing. Let's get it. We'll get a drummer. So it worked out. I mean, that was the easy part, finding somebody to, to replace me so I could go over and switch over to bass. But what I didn't know at the time that was that, oh, my God, singing lead and playing bass is a whole nother thing than singing lead and playing drums. Ah, you were doing both. Okay. 
hard. Yes. Can we go back, please? And, and by that time, it was like, no, well, we already got the guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, just um, later, he took the gig. We gave him the gig. He's in the band. And you're 11 at so, this time. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you're in that position, so you just got to try to see what you can do with it. And, um, I, you know, every time, and it's still to this day, every time you learn a new song as the singer and have to play the bass with that song, you ha it's like starting from the beginning again. Mm. You know? It definitely takes some talent to be able to sing and play at the same time. And you got to learn both things. I mean, the, the bass, I guess, is the thing that probably... You have to kind of get that down so that you can be free to express what the song is about, right. you know? So you can kind of like put, park that in the back of your brain, the bass, the bass function. I get that. And, it, uh, and it's tough because, you know, like most of us, we really want to have, you know, we don't want to just play like nothing when we're playing bass. We want to, we want to have some fun with that too. Right. So it's kind of like, okay, you got to learn all these tricks to like, okay, where's the holes? Where can I have some fun you know, in the song yeah. with playing bass? Even though I'm singing the song, you know, you look for those magic little moments. You have any, you have any tips for people to work on that? I, all I can think of is like with the Fab Fo, the Speedles band that we have, for example. I love that group, by the way. Oh, thanks, yeah. man. It's yeah, it's a challenge. It's a lot of fun, but it's 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 so fascinating to try to, you know, the, if the purpose of the band, which I think it is, is to, is to bring the records to the stage, bring those Beatles records to the stage, the ones that, you know, a lot of those bands want to want to pretend to be the Beatles and put the clothes on and, and look like they're on the Ed Sullivan Show and all that stuff, but. To me, like there was so much magic in those tracks, mm -hmm. you know, and there's beautiful details to to try to like uh, replicate and try to try to have fun with. So, for me, my process, you know, and and we're talking about like you know by now we've done like all sort of, I guess two hundred and eighteen of the main songs from the Beatles records proper, mm. you know what I mean. Yeah whatever you want to call that. And that includes some of the covers too. You know, a lot of the covers that they, that they had on the, on all those albums, the please, please me album and all those early back when they were doing other stuff, you know, that's killer. Uh, it was for sale, whatever. Um, so I, I try to get the bass part down. You know, I try to get that, try to really dig in and see what that is exactly. And really try to get those notes properly uh, in my system and then I'll, from there, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll feel, once I feel sort of confident with that, I'll feel free to start focusing on learning the vocal part. Got it. One thing at a, one all, thing at a time. One thing at a time, but, but it's all as important as anything else, any other element of it, you know, right. so. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned um, Paul McCartney as a, as a bass player and somebody that you, you sort of looked up to as a kid. Um was there any other bass player at the time that really that you saw and you were just like, I want to do that. I want to be that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was happy to be Ringo until we didn't have any bass players at our age that we had. To, <laughs> then I had to be right. Paul. Gotcha. 
And we weren't even doing Beatles songs, I don't think. That's the funny thing about it. We started doing surf instrumentals because we didn't, you know, like those venture songs. Okay. Like, because we didn't have a PA. So, you know, we had two, we had maybe the guitars played through one amp and then I had my drum kit, you know, that was our first six bucks a man gig. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing that got me on the kit though, was that moment. I'd had a kit for years that my dad bought me for Christmas, like years before, and they just kind of sat collecting dust. Okay. And I, I didn't really have a, a motivation to, to like do anything re- for real with them, anything serious. But that moment that the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan show, and you got close-ups of Ringo with that sweeping hi-hat motion and all that stuff, and you just, you just, and, and by that time, the record, the record, the album had been out for a month or so. You know, the um, the Meet the Beatles album in our in our country had been out for like a month, and the single had been out like for two months or whatever, and you started, and you had fallen in love with the sound. And that didn't mean you knew anything about how to get to that sound. But when they showed you visually, like close-ups of these guys doing their thing, you know, I with the drum kit was focused on Ringo, and I was and I was watching every move and going, God, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to. I want to do that, man. I, I gotta do that, <laughs> you know. So I got busy, like really, like really energized and really into it. I started all of a sudden I, I had a drum kit that wasn't in the way. Mm. I wasn't tripping over it. I was couldn't wait to sit down at it, you know. That's a beautiful thing. That is a great, yeah. great feeling as well. Oh God, it was unbelievable. And that was the beginning, yeah. you know, of, of of everything. And I'm I'm not like unique with that story. I mean, it, you've probably heard a lot of very well known um artists in our country talking about that moment now Chrissy Hine you know Bruce Springsteen Billy Joel you know, we all have the same story about that Beatle moment yeah. that thing that happened love it love it so yeah. so did you take lessons or were you um I never, did. never I never gave okay. I never took or gave a lesson okay um how about for the show and stuff do you read I do how did you I I think it helped that I was a, that I played trumpet for years in in school, okay. and French horn. And when I got into uh, college, I was already playing bass at, at night, but I was studying like you know legit whatever. Play. I, I was majoring on French horn for the first uh, semester of college. Very cool. And uh, I sucked, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and everybody knew it. And I wasn't doing well, making really bad grades. And, but I was working six sets a night, six nights a week, um, you know, every every week playing bass. And the assistant dean sat me down. He said, "Look, man, you're flunking, and you're gonna have you're gonna you may have to you may have to get kicked out of here." Oh. But I've noticed that you played bass well. <laughs> And why don't you major on bass? And I was, it was, it was such a new thing at that time. I was like, you can do that. Wow. Uh, 
Okay, I but I don't read uh, bass clef. And he did this really cool exercise. He took a piece of, I mean, I would advise anybody to do this. Took a piece of manuscript paper. Oh, you can't, you can't see it. Nobody can see it because it's audio. Right. But because of my goofy <laughs> virtual background. <laughs> manuscript paper, right? And he just took a pencil and he went like, he started putting dots everywhere, like put a dot, boop, name that note. And it took me a minute because I'd, I'd heard of the bass clef, you know. Yeah. So, so, okay, uh, G, yes. And he hits the next, he hits another dot somewhere else. And I go, oh, oh uh, R, no, <laughs> C. Anyway, he slowly starts to get me like, naming these notes right by just putting a pencil mark on a line or a space the next thing i knew i was like kind of getting faster at that okay and that's the thing i noticed about 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 i've always noticed about reading is like once you know what that thing is it's always going to be that thing whether we're talking about the note or the rhythm so the note is reliable. It's always going to be a, a an F if it's on that if it's on that place, right? And then the next thing that I I really got uh, super uh, um, in, informed by was Carol Kay had a had a method book had four volumes of this method book, and you can still get this. I'm pretty sure, but it was great. It was like electric bass. I think was the name of it or something like that. And honestly, one thing that really got me was I opened up one of the one of the volumes. I forget if it was I think it was either one or four or something. I can't remember. But but I was made to love her by Stevie Wonder. That that part was was written out. And and that's that was rare at the time to for somebody to have transcribed a. Uh, like a, a song that you'd heard on the radio where you can just look at the part. Okay. It's, it's, it's like our version of, of classical players looking at scores. Got you know? it. Yeah. So you pick up this thing and you put the record on, you hear the, you hear this baseline going and you're looking at it visually. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's what that figure looks like. Oh my God. That is cool. You know, like a bump, bump, bump. Right, like a sixteenth and eighth and, and a sixteenth connected on a three thing, you know, all connected by come stems coming off of a bar, you know, down from a bar. And and there's that there's that thing that bop 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 and then there's bop 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 and there's bop bop bop, <laughs> you know, and they can all sort of be the same kind of grouping, but feel different if they're if they look slightly different. And there was something about that revelation that got me really excited. And then, you know, because that, because figures would repeat within that song, the next time it came around, you'd seen it before. So you, now you could sort of like anticipate what that's going to be next. Cause, Oh, I know the record, you know, I've heard the record and kind of know the figure. And I remember what it looked like when I first saw it a couple of seconds ago. And there it is again. So, that's the great thing about about reading is that once you have those 
they're always going to be that thing. You know, once you have those figures down, that's never going to change. It's always going to be something you can rely on. And I, I love that about reading. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Very well explained, too. It, it makes a lot of sense. There's very few things in life that you can rely on, but those notes are one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go from from being in college, um, playing playing some bass, uh, and you become this first call session guy. How did that happen? Well, that happened because of moving to New York. Really, okay. Honestly, I had never even heard of a studio musician, and I came to New York to audition for this band called Dreams, which had uh, Billy Cobham on drums. Uh, the Brecker brothers were in the horn section. Don Grolnick, uh, Bob Mann, these outstanding players. And I just happened to be a huge fan of their, of their record that had been out. And I had been really, it had become my favorite thing to listen to. And it was just a completely freaky thing that, I got called by those guys to come up and audition when when their bass player, Chuck Rainey, thank God I'd never heard of him, um, <laughs> was leaving the band, right? And I come up and I nail the audition because it was just like floating for me. I'd never played with a drummer as powerful as Billy Cobham. It was just like, are you kidding me? I don't have to, I don't have to keep time. Insane. Amazing. Just play. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> By the way, I'm coming up from Miami. I don't know if I mentioned that, but that's where I, that's where I was going to school when all this was happening. And um, some of these guys in the band were getting studio work, and I got invited to come, sort of like, you know, hang in the control room while they were doing sessions a couple of times. And I saw this thing going down. It was like, and I felt like I was looking through a keyhole at a civilization that had been established bef long before I was born. You know, it was like, wow, this is, I can see how sewn up this thing is, but, and I'll never be a part of it, but wow, what a cool thing. Imagine. Right. And it was, it was, you know, it was a really sewn up kind of world. Like the same people did this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, did a lot of the sessions and, and I never imagined myself in that situation. I, I really appreciated how cool it was, but I didn't see see me doing it because I didn't know what the qualifications or what the game was or any of that stuff. You know, just like okay, well, so so dreams started to become like a thing that started to become obvious to me that this band Dreams was not a hugely successful band uh, as far as the public. It was kind of if we were opening for Frampton, we'd get booed off the stage. Uh, know, Billy Cobham left the band to go do Mahavishnu, and we never quite replaced them again and the band just kind of fizzled no. so i thought that okay so i'm going to go back to miami where i'm i'm king shit now because i've been to, to new york and played with these guys and i'll go back to my you know eight eight bands and gigging every night and all the stuff that i was doing before i left and the guitar player bob mann heard me say this and said oh no you're not you're not going back to miami you're going to stay in, in my house he and this a drummer, Alan Schwartzberg, were splitting a house and they had extra room and they said, you're going to stay in our house and we're going to get you work. Awesome. And I felt like, uh, okay. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And sure enough, and Bob Mann was like arranging 
music for uh, jingles and stuff. Did you, you know, tell us some of the classic jingles you played on or sang on? Well, this first, the very first thing I walked in, in on, the very first thing that happened was Steve Gadd was doing a, uh, Steve Gadd and Tony Levin were like this kind of team that were doing all, all this work together. And Tony couldn't make a thing. And Steve recommended me for this this commercial for contact cold pills. Nice. And I and and back then, um, when some when some jingle company got like what what they call an account, they would get all they would get like for the for the whole year. They would get they would sort of win the ability to to do this piece of a piece of music that they had written and do different versions of it for different formats, different audiences. It'd be an R and B version. It'd be a country version. It'd be a whatever, whatever, right. TV and radio. So I walk in and, and I'm playing, I'm backing up this song for contact cold pills. And it's like, the song was like, uh, um, uh, give your hand to a friend, give your heart to your love, but give your cold to contact. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and I go, okay, that's, that's really fun. I'm playing with Steve Gadd and grooving. This is great. And as I'm about to walk out the door, the arranger sits, sits me down. And he says, hey, man, I, I know you're, you're this hip guy on the scene. And I'm like, really? Okay. Um just because they, they all respected dreams, right? This band, okay. you know, even the jingle guys, especially the cool ones. Nice. And he said, uh, yeah, you know, I'm looking for a, um, I'm looking for like a white blue eyed soul kind of David Clayton Thomasy singer to do this, this, uh, a version of this thing this for this campaign. And could you sit down at the piano for a second? Once you, and I, so I, Give your hand to <laughs> I just put a little growl on it, whatever. And he says, come in tomorrow. You're going to do this. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. And I'll be, and I get in and it's a final, you know, and it runs and it's on the air and it's like, wow. So that was like my very first thing. And the other guy, Bob Mann, who said, you're not going back to Miami. You're going to stay here in New York. He was arranging a thing for Kentucky Fried Chicken for another company. And they, they didn't know me, but Bob said, I got this guy and I go in, <clears throat> play bass. And then, and then I'm singing this thing for like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and from there on, it started to sort of blossom that I was this guy that I could do stuff. <laughs> you were doing. I was into it. I mean, I find playing like, I just want, I just want to please you know you you want to please your own ears that's your that's your main thing that you know right. you know because you've heard music now you have sort of a, a feeling in your body what what good or bad is right sort of <laughs> that kind of thing hopefully hopefully yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. right and i'm lucky because i you know it's this is funny i've said this before I, I grew up in a family of jazz musicians my father was a, a keyboard player my mom was a singer and they played a lot of jazz records in the house and all this stuff so Somewhere in my body, I know what 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 feels good versus not what doesn't feel good. When something doesn't feel good, it's like, well, that's not like the records that I grew up with. You know, that's where cats were actually grooving their asses off, yeah. 
and, and listening to each other because it was an ensemble thing, right? So you kind of get all this information from without even like knowing you're getting it. Yeah. You start young enough, right. you know. So I, I had all that going for me. So it was a lot of there was a lot of instinct involved. But I was but I also gave a crap, you know, I really wanted to make it happen. So I, I you know, I tried to get a good sounding instrument. I tried to play in tune. I tried to be on time. And <laughs> happened most of the time when I was completely sober. Um, I had years of drug problems after that, after the beginning. Okay. Don't mind talking about because I'm really happy to be sober for 36 years and change at this Congratulations. point. Congratulations. Yeah, I feel lucky to be alive. That is, that is real. That is that is really great. Congrats on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had to check in I had to, at some point I had to check in because I was, I had to check into rehab because I was, it was a mess. I was a mess. Um, but the, uh, you know, I got away with it for a long time, got, got away with, with getting high in between, you know, things and stuff. And then, and then certain, somehow the getting high schedule started to started, the ends started to meet, uh-huh. you know, there was like no gap in between. Got it. And I couldn't really play or sing in that condition, you know. Did it affect your jobs? It really did. Okay. It, it did. There were people that, that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't call me to this day. Mm. Wouldn't risk this guy who missed the session that day, you know. Well, great. Because once, once you get pigeonholed in that place, it's like you're gone for, for some people. I mean, there were people that were... People like Arif Martin, who kept, you know, kept calling me through 26 different albums that I did with him. Wow. That's so crazy. <laughs> 26. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, hey, fist bump to you for getting it under control and uh, having this fantastic career. You played on some seriously iconic albums. I was looking at your discography online last night and I, I was like oh my god that's will oh my god oh oh sh- oh crap all right all right so you went from doing jingles to how did you was there uh was there a highlight of the first session that you did a big session where you were like holy crap i've made it this is amazing how did i get here so <clears throat> that same guy bob men that guitar player that we've been talking about. He's all over the place, by the way. He's You can find him on lots and lots of stuff. Um, he's a super talented arranger, writer, and all this stuff. His father was an organ player on those soap operas. Oh, you know? nice. Yeah, so he's a super musical guy. And he and he got this, uh, his father got this uh, gig to, to replicate. Remember the movie Shaft? Yeah, yeah. Hayes did all this great yep. music, right? <laughs> well, he got he got a deal to make a rip-off version of the Shaft album. Uh. The, Shaft, the Shaft album was so big that a company came along and said, you know, we want to do like a 99-cent version of this that sold in 7-Elevens. Hotel <laughs> kind of record companies. It was called Pickwick Records. Okay. <laughs> and... And I go in, and of course, I'm a big Beatles fanatic, 
and Wings had just had just put out their first album, Paul McCartney and Wings, with Linda McCartney, Denny Lane, and this guy named Denny Sywell on drums. And Denny Sywell, I don't know if you know who, who he is. I'm not is. familiar. Denny Sywell played on like um, Live and Let Die and Band on the Run. Okay. He, now he's a wing guy, got it, right? Got it. <clears throat> but he's also a jazzer. And people in New York knew him as, as, a, as a session guy to, you know, whose favorite thing was jazz and all this stuff. So I go into this, by the way, this, this 99 cent version of Shaft <laughs> session where we're, we're doing all the songs from the movie Shaft, from the, from the big hit album, <clears throat> to be sold to people who could afford a 99 cent version of that. <laughs> Kenny Sidewell on drums. Even though he's in Wings, he came back to New York, I guess, to do this session for Bob Men. And I'm like gobsmacked. I can't believe what's happening. This is like... Now I've hit the big time because I'm in this room with the Mike Brecker, uh, Bob Mann, I think uh, the guy, his father on keyboards, and there's Denny Sywell on drums. I'm, like, I'm practically on a Beatles session at this point. <laughs> it's like, wow, I have completely made it. And you can, you can still find versions of that on uh, <clears throat> on YouTube, but... A lot of rappers have sampled stuff from that session and oh, stuff. Oh, awesome. Amazing. I'm, I'm yeah, going to go check it out for sure. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So, so how <clears> did you <throat> go then from uh, being a, a big session guy to doing Letterman's show? And and really, once you're doing it, because I know you're doing both at the same time, was it hard to balance both careers? It was because, um, you know, the the record thing you know sometimes that's not like okay so so the the al the hours of the of the letterman show were basically somewhere in the, a big chunk of hours in the middle of, of the afternoon right so not too many producers are willing to let you go right when you're got, starting to get a vibe going and then come back a few hours later you know and resume everybody while everybody waits for you you're right <laughs> <laughs> Very few people do that. <laughs> you don't want, I don't want to do that. I don't know who would want to do that. But Arif Martin was probably the most patient of, of anybody about that until he finally got fed up with it too. But, but uh, yeah, it was kind of, you know, jingles were one thing because that's a quickie in the morning kind of thing. But then the record thing kind of got stepped on by the Letterman Show thing. So you couldn't really, really continue doing uh, long record sessions. And, and you also couldn't leave town. For, for to do anything out of town, right. you know, I'd stick around and do what you could in between. So, which do you prefer, television um, or uh, studio? You know what? I like everything. Okay. I have I have this weird this weird gene that makes me feel like wherever I am is the place to be. Got it. And especially when it comes to playing music, I always feel like if you're, if, man, if you're playing music with some people in a room together, that's the place to be. Where, what's, a, what's a better place than that, you know? It's all about the music and being fortunate to be able to play it. Yeah, it's huge for me. It's still, I still feel that way. When you walk in the room, nothing else exists except for that experience at, in that room. And I'm a scatterbrain, believe me, so... <laughs> 
for me to ever feel that way is pretty unbelievable. I love that, man. That's great. Uh, how'd you end up playing uh, Sadowski basses? Well, Roger was a, a luthier in town that, that the word started to get out that he was a guy who could like really do a good job on your instrument, you know, could, and, and you're doing sessions like all day long and, you know, and once in a while stuff has to get tweaked, you know, you need new frets, you need a new pot, you need something, you know, a neck thing. And he, he, the word got out that he was like this really special guy that did a great job of it and quickly, you know, <clears throat> which was really important because, you know, you didn't have a lot of time to let your instrument go forever. You know, you wanted to get it back on the scene so you could keep playing, keep the sessions going. And uh, sure enough, he was a super great guy. He is a super great guy. And uh, he was just amazing at what he did. And, and the most amazing thing about Roger is that not all of us speak in technical terms, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, I'm not going to tell you how many ohms this capacitor has. It's in my mid-range. Uh, I am the, I'm the same way, man. <laughs> how does it sound? How does it sound? How does it feel? Does it work? Cool. Yeah. Does it does it feel good in your fingers? Right. In, does, in your in your body yeah. in your ergonomic setup system. So Roger had this uncanny ability because he really gave a crap, you know, to, to just listen to you spew out your garbage. And he would turn that into science, basically. Crazy. He was really intent on, on making you happy, mm. you know. And that was really awesome. So at one point, I think the word got out that he was work, working on, like, installing preamps into instruments. And of course, you know, the competition's big and you want to, you want to be like, you want to be, you want to be you on steroids. So yeah, put one of those in there for me, you know, <laughs> let's see what happens. And I can't tell you how many vintage instruments I've completely destroyed by, by putting onboard preamps inside, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, what matters is like the music, you know, for sure, for sure. So he gave, you know, so putting that preamp in gave you this certain edge and made your instrument actually uh, like way more versatile than it ever was before. You know, because all, now all of a sudden you have these accentuated highs and these massive lows and everything in between, right? And you could get thumpier than the thumpiest reggae guy on the planet just by twisting this knob this way, you know? I love it. Yeah, and that's my favorite bass sound is that car going down the road. <laughs> <laughs> boom. That's my the boom. That's yeah. The woofy. And um you know, after after many, many years of Roger and I working together, he he approached me at one point and said, Do you want to do a signature bass? Sweet. Based on like all the stuff, all the like journey that we've been through and like, you know discovery and stuff you know and and out of that came like the the the, the willie signature model and can people get that still oh Very yeah cool. in fact um they're developing these bases have been like five to six grand you know over the years that's been the kind of the price uh -huh. point and they i think most uh, at least partially as a result of his the recent relationship with with um, 
War- Warwick. Warwick. Yeah. Thank you. It was almost in Warmouth. I was like, no, that's not right. Yeah, Warwick, of course. Warwick, Germany. Um, they're coming out with like like around $1,000 version of it or oh, something. Oh, cool. Yeah. And is it, is it still, you know, pretty? Oh, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, Roger has a... His, he has a history of, of making these really roadworthy instruments. Great. They're super reliable. You always know what's going to happen when you plug it in. It's going to be there for you, right. right? So I love that about those instruments because I don't want to bother. and I don't want to become a luthier, you know? <laughs> I get that. I bought all the tools. I get I bought all the tools, you know, the ones that you, that, that you, that you rub against the side of the neck to try to, like, you know, de de seasonalize your your uh, your frets as they're sticking way out of the and instrument. How'd that, you know? how'd that turn out? It's still zipped up. So, well, wait till like Roger. What makes the bass uh, unique? Well, this model, first of all, it's got a really nice weight because it's a chambered body, right? And what I wanted from Roger forever and he and he'll tell you the story too is that i wanted to i wanted to i wanted to uh have something that would help me uh get that 500 frequency out without 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 doing it with my fingers without you know just banging the hell out of the instrument for for those uh frequencies to come out of the instrument and and pop out through the room okay so for years, I tried to talk him into a mid-range circuit, bottom line. And we worked on it. And he finally, you know, he, he kind of fought me for years, you know, in, in a way, because he, would, he was thinking that, uh, and I understand this, that, that the frequencies of his current preamp wasn't, uh, were, was, were not going to be the same once you add a mid-range to the, to the circuitry, right? compromise those beautiful highs and lows that he's kind of known for but he found a way around it and um so we got the 500 boost in the instrument and it's got a lot it's got a nice it's got a nice mid-range circuit but you can also adjust it and and have pre if there's like three or four pre, four presets that you can that you can kind of click on and off in the back of the instrument okay and then you can turn the mid-range circuit on and off on the front of the instrument just with a toggle switch. Oh, right? very cool. You can play it without that. The other thing that, that I was interested in I, is I I love Jocko's bass w- with that 1961 super thin neck mm. at the nut. Yep. At the nut, it's really, really small. I found it, I found that I could articulate stuff really nicely better with my left hand if if the neck is not too wide like right. that. And um so he he got that happening and and I was lobbying for a 24 fret neck which I couldn't talk him into because of balance. Mm. And so we ended up with a 22 fret neck which is pretty nice which is better than you know which is a little bit more rangy than a typical 60s fender. Right. You know, so really, what it is, it's like a jazz bass on steroids. Okay. Basically, it's just, okay. yeah, you can do anything with it, and this. you love it. I love it. I play it all the time. That's my main thing, and I can get anything I want out of it. I mean, I still have you know, 
behind me i have a few things a few items of loveliness as you can see so for those of you that can't see like i am so fortunate <laughs> enough to see at the moment what do we have you got it you got your 61p oh yeah this is a fretless uh sadowski this is a, a jazz bass that i bought from gil goldstein for 500 bucks which i love what about strings and effects and amps and all that well man i'm just using sadowski's uh Black label, um, round wounds for the most part. Okay. Still looking for the flat wound of doom. The flat but wound I, of doom. I try, you know, Tomastic, uh, Labella, a lot of them have been great. Okay. Amps? Amps. Um, I've been, I'm with Aguilar these days. Cool. So I love their 751. I like their 750 even more, but they don't make it anymore. Uh, okay. Turn yeah. It the funny thing about amps is, man, I'm a studio guy so much. Yeah. I can never get my sound out of anything. Got it. Except a direct box. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And that, yeah, you know what? When I first got into New York and started getting sessions, there was a thing called the New York Bass Amp Club. It was like this mafia of bass players the bass amp club had gotten together and if you were in the club and you were paying your dues then you got a key to unlock and they were always there were always these ampeg b15 flip yeah, tops yeah so if you paid your dues you got the key that unlocked the chain that allowed you to open that flip top and open up and use the amp ah very cool i i not being in the club wasn't allowed to have access to that amp. So I said, well, you know what, man, um, just take me direct, you know, we'll see what happens. <clears throat> and I got used to that and I could really hear my instrument without any coloring, just the uh -huh. instrument, you know? So I kind of knew how to control that really well. Seems like you can right. adapt your technique a little bit as well with just the sort of natural, true sound of the bass. Yes. Yeah. And the bass, you know, any, almost every bass has a, at least a, a, some kind of tone control right. on it too. Yeah. You know, you can get a lot of flaves out of the, out of a little bit. If you, you know, if you incorporate your fingers in different places and, and pick and whatever. Yeah. Right on. So I, um, I got used to being able to control it without an amp so that now that when I get into to a stage and there's an amp there, I'm like, well, <laughs> Uh, I sound like me. I don't even know, you yeah, know. Very cool. I don't know what's going on out there in the house. <laughs> I would, I would if, I, if there was no amp involved, for sure. Just turning it up to 12 and let's go. <laughs> Do you use effects at all? I love, I, I, I can't get enough Woo! effects. I love them so what's your and What's now, your go-to? Well, you know, it's not the greatest, uh, it's not the cleanest, and there's no bypass on it, but I love the GT-10B by Boss, and mainly because I know how to do it. Okay. <laughs> I know how to work You're it. You're comfortable with I it. I got it. A song title instead of like, you know, setting 6493XY. Right. You can actually have the name of the song. Okay. You know, and, and it's probably about, I don't know, I, I want to say 50 banks of four. Wow. 
So that's a lot of a lot of really cool sounds I've, I've been able to to dial up over the years. I use it for I had a special set of sounds just for the Letterman show. I had a special set of sounds. I do have a set, special set for for Fab Faux that I've designed all the sounds for that for all those Beatle records stuff. Right on. Be surprised how many different textures are on those, and you know, and what really brings it to life is when you bring when you get the actual bass that was used on the record on the Beatle records, <clears throat> like the Hoffner does what the Hoffner uh-huh. does. And, and if it's, too in, if it's too in tune, it doesn't sound good because it's not no longer. <laughs> off the- yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> you gotta have, you gotta have that. And, and what, and like with the Rickon, when the Rickenbacker came along, Paul was like using that, like for everything, you know, revolver, you know, most of the, almost everything except for one or two songs on rubber soul all of Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, all this stuff that was all Rick and Backer stuff. Yellow Sub. All right, for for, uh, uh, for young bass players out there, or for any bass player, really, uh, what's one <clears throat> Beatles bass line that they should learn? One Beatles bass line? Well, you got to learn Come Together. Yeah. I just taught my son that. Okay, how did you teach them to play? Well, we sat down with the record, and we played along, and I... Did you know... Go, uh-oh, you're going to teach me something right now, and I cannot wait. I don't, I don't have an amp here. I don't know if you're going to hear this. Uh, that's okay, I can... Okay, so let's see. What's the most... I can hear you. Can I can hear, hear you. Yeah. So, so if you're like... This is, I'm going to tell you a Daryl Jones story too okay. in a minute, but if you're, if you're just kind of like thinking, okay, like the notes are the yeah. notes, you'll probably want to, you probably want to start yeah. here. Right. Right. Okay. That's, that's okay. You know what the song is, but if you're in a Beatles yeah. band, you really want it to happen. You've got to start down here. Cause you, if you notice what McCartney does, he goes, Oh, uh, yeah, the slide. Yeah. Right? Okay. You can't get that if you no. start here. You can't get no. that, right? So down here. In fact, he doesn't even he doesn't even reattack this note sometimes. This this one. That ah. one. Sometimes he goes right to it, but sometimes. That's the next thing we're working on with my son. Right, but there's always that slide that could that, 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 Okay, so there's that. So this is like a, the fun, the funny, funny story that Daryl Jones told me millions of years ago. He's, he grew up in Chicago, yeah, right. And the hot, the hot record was Sly and the Family Stone. Um, thank you for letting me be myself. Love again, that jam. Right? And that is the bass jam, yep. you know. <laughs> he knows that. My son knows that one too. Right? Well, here's here's like the. Here's the young bass player version of that song. It's like, oh. Right. I got it, man. Look, okay. But the real happening guys that later on became the Daryl Joneses had this. They had this. And this is the young Daryl Jones. Ah, 
<laughs> put some jazz yeah. on it, man. You know, roll it over and walk it up. All right, okay. And then later on, as, as we grew up, we finally realized it's oh, it's right, right, right. And then this little bit. <laughs> right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There's like views of of, of the same thing. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's all good. What what uh what brings you joy outside of music? Oh God. I I still I just love exploring. I love trying to see if I can if I can I mean, I get excited about about an idea like really early on, like right away, whether it's a, a lyric or a hook or a bass part. But then okay, so you got that, but that's not a song yet, you right. know. Then you gotta keep working. Yeah. <laughs> so that so the excitement's over at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Until, until it is a song. Until and it's never, it's not a song until it's finished, right. right? Right. So that's a long process in between that first excitement and that last excitement. Yeah. But I love thinking I'm going to get there. So do you you take that same approach, uh, say maybe traveling or in in life itself. As far as. Ex- uh, uh, um, uh, experimenting or going on adventures or you look at I look at music as an adventure and you talk about creating the song and you know the idea of creating a song and, and it's exciting and when I go outside in the morning I like to look at the sunrise and at the end of the day hopefully yeah. a sunset and there's so much possibility that's my favorite word right there. You just said my favorite word. Possibility. If I if I had any ink, if I had a tat, it would be that. It would be this symbol right here, which is Sanskrit for possibility. Amazing. All right. Came from a Japanese fan at the end of a Hiram Bullock show one night. Okay. We're signing autographs and people are lined up to give you to, to maybe maybe get a photo, but give you a gift for sure. And everybody's got something to give you. And it's just a beautiful thing. And somebody handed me this one night and I never found out who that person was. But when I found out what this meant and I, and I just heard the word possibility, it just a bell started to ring in my head. I was like, man, how powerful is that word? It truly is. It truly is. It's like an open door. Yeah, man. Like anything can Absolutely. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll tell you what gets me up in the morning is the thought of a cappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that too. I drink cold brew. I'll drink a cappuccino or six as well. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a spatula. And I'm in a can until, until I start to think about. (laughs) Yeah. I get it. I get it. So you said you were in France. Uh, How'd you end up there? During COVID, we were here for nine months straight. Oh, wow. Okay. And and I'm not really a French speaker. So a lot of times I'll just come up into my room and I'll be, and I'll just start to create. Beautiful. And I've, you know, I've written a bunch of tunes since I've been here. And I've learned a lot about, you know, we, we, we did, we kind of forgot about that we were talking about effects, but I am. I got really into the, the plug-in thing. 
and I started like buying every plugin I could find. <laughs> I kept getting excited about this next thing and that next thing and this piano texture and that string thing. And oh my God, ah, there's not enough in the world. And I'm still like always in the market for like really great sounds and stuff. I just love pedal thing is totally up my alley. I mean, I just, I, in the beginning of like, like the electroharmonics thing was started in the late sixties, right? Like around 68 electroharmonics was making pedals for their goal was to make pedals for the weekend musician. That's what Mike Matthews once told me a long time ago. Like his goal was to make it these affordable pedals for the weekend. Okay. You know, he could freak, he could get his freak on, you know? <laughs> and of course, uh, accidentally, a lot of them ended up being like having a certain charm that people really took to, you know, like Richard T wouldn't have been Richard T on the electric piano without the small stone, you know. Got it. Um, and on and on, Jimmy, Jimmy fell in love with the electric mistress, yeah. right? And, um, and then everybody loved the big muff, the muff, big muff pie. I love the big muff. Know, for fun. Right. And so he, we, back in the beginning of his thing, early 70s, I was called to do a session for him to, to do like a demo record of featuring all these sounds, the Electric Mistress and, and different uh, things that I was plugging into. And I, I, I was getting way into it because I wanted, I wanted to, so, so say you have chops on, on one instrument and you want it to sound like other instruments. Mm -hmm. You can express yourself because you have your chops on that one instrument, right? right? So you want you a guy like me, I want I want to be able to play anything I hear out of that instrument. Drums, you know, I would love it if if you could do the whole orchestra thing, you know, which I, I got really involved with Steve Chick many years ago, the guy who who made the thing that later on became it was called the MIDI bass, and then it, and then it was and then line six got it. And they and and they they took it over his thing, and made the what do they call their their bass that triggered other sounds and stuff. Um, I can't think of what the product name was. Mm, I'm not. I'm not those line sticks. They have a, a virtual guitar too okay. that does thing. Got it. But it's all based on like audio, um, and, and I, I believe it's audio that's also connected somehow to the frets, so that so that. You know, it's not a it's not a synth trigger trigger thing. It's it's coming from audio basically. Okay. But the fact that it's somehow connected to the, the the circuitry is somehow connected to the frets, which allows like bends and things to happen. So 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 the the technology of, of whatever is recreating the sound knows what your intent is. You know, when you're making a move on the instrument, and it tracks pretty good as a result of that. It's not very shaky. No, it's pretty good. Cool. It's pretty good. I've used it for like upright stuff because I don't really have an upright, okay. you know. And um, so I love any kind of all those kind of things. And I think the one big hole in the industry that I can see right now, as far as plugins goes, is there's no there's no thing that you can plug your guitar or bass in that does a really good synth. You mm. know, I don't software wise. I know of. Uh, in a yeah, I mean, it can't, got it. Yeah. Right, it can't like turn your audio signal into a convincing, you know, analog synth sound very well that I know of. If you know of anything, please. Oh, let I'm gonna me have know. to. I'm gonna have to do some research. 
I probably know uh, a few people that do know about all this stuff. But are you connected with um, with Dunlop? I am. I am. I, yeah. I am. Dunlop is great stuff for Actually, years, man. The uh, Poly Blue Octave pedal has a. It's a oh. new pedal. Poly, yeah, you got to check that out. It's uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff with it Wait. lately. What's that? What is it? What's the what's what's? Uh, uh, tell me anything about there it. There's a wide unique. range of uh, stuff that you can do with it. It's very versatile. You can do sort of. Uh, uh, I'm gonna pull up a few things here that. Let me. Wow. Uh, How many knobs does it have? Let me. It has six. And a, oh, wow. a couple switches. I'm going to have Daryl send this to you and the information, but let me just tell you that uh, I've been having, I mean, there's a fuzz on there. It can make a synth sound. It can go as dirty as you can possibly imagine. Um, there's, uh, hang on one second. Cracking wise? The track's great. It's me happening? Yeah. And what about the range? What about how far down on... On the instrument, can you go and have it still be tracking? I've well? gone up and down the neck. It's all good. It's all good. Octave one. Really? There's a plus octave two, and then down one and two. You can get a very, very, very loud sub going on from it. I love. There's the, some modulation um, you know the stuff pop. on it. You can get an organ sound. You know the pod. Yeah. I... You still there? Really. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of stuff you can you can do with it. Mod modulation, fuzz, awesome. yeah, love it. I just want to tell you that I loved your loved your interview with Sean Hurley. By the way, oh, oh thank you. Sean's a great guy. I've known him for many many years. Awesome. I don't know him, but I thought that was like really inspiring, and you know, just he was just so honest, and you know, just uh, easy to. To follow, yeah, he's just a, a real know, he's dude. Got a, got a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a great mind, yeah, for sure. But Will, I want to thank you for doing this. This has been a, yeah. I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but I'm gonna let you go here. Um, but thank you so much for coming on here. Any last Thanks. last minute advice for uh, bass players? No, man, just keep loving it, you know, and keep and keep digging yourself, you know, because you're, you're the shit. Boom. There it is. Thank you for listening to the Bass Freaks podcast. I really appreciate you all. Stay healthy, spread love, spread joy, kindness, good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Until next time, cheers. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making the show possible. Make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts.